0: The new Labour government is already crying poor when it comes to health, education, the NDIS, or raising the job seeker rate, but they're committed to spending at least $170 billion over coming years on a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. Those boats are part of a new agreement between Australia, the US, and Britain known as AUKUS. It's just one more way in which Western nations, including Australia, are organising to contain or even threaten China. And rather than guaranteeing peace, these kinds of alliances and the huge increases in militarization that accompany them make the threat of war ever more real. There are already coalitions of anti-war activists organising against AUKUS in Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere. The Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Maritime Union of Australia are among union bodies that have voiced their opposition to AUKUS. And activists are getting ready to oppose a proposed new 10 billion dollar submarine base in either Brisbane, Newcastle or Port Kembla near Wollongong. To talk about the issues I'm joined by Professor Richard Tanter. Richard is a Senior Research Associate with the Nautilus Institute and an Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He's also a former President of the Australian Board of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in October 2017. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. So welcome, Richard. Good to be with you, David. Now, there's a bit of an alphabet soup of alliances against China that Australia is now involved in. They include AUKUS, but also the Quad, and very recently, Partners in the Blue Pacific or PBP. So perhaps we should start by explaining what these are and how they fit together. Well, first of all, there's the alphabet soup
1: of the American bilateral uh, alliances, which go back to the early 1950s between United States and Australia, ANZUS, now without the NZ New Zealand, uh, AMPO, United States and Japan, and the US ROK, US and South Korea bilateral alliances. But as you point out, that has been really shifting in recent years, Firstly, with the Quad, which was roughly invented during the Bush administration, but then came to life about five years ago uh, once again with United States, Australia, Japan and India uh, following the Bush administration's sort of carving away of India from at least some of its uh, uh, former non-aligned position. More recently we've had, courtesy of Scott Morrison, the uh, AUKUS agreement, the Australia United Kingdom US agreement and that's a, a very mysterious piece of political magic, you, I think he was hoping to win a, a khaki election with it the centrepiece of course are the nuclear pro, uh, propelled submarines that you've mentioned already, there's also uh, some very vague references to uh, increased defence industrial cooperation there uh, and cybersecurity, security but they're basically fluff at the moment, not they're fluff in reality but they're already dealt with under other agreements and there's very little detail about what AUKUS actually adds to that. The last one that you mentioned, Partnership for the Blue Pacific, is a a relationship between Australia, um, New Zealand, Japan and the United States. And uh, that's really about the Australian coordinated but pretty much clearly U.S. auspiced uh, reaction to Chinese initiatives, diplomatic and military initiatives in the Pacific. And it's committed, I think, from memory to something like $2 billion of what is supposed to be new uh, contributions to the economies and budgets of the governments of the South Pacific. So there are, as you say, it's an alphabet soup. Uh, There are more underlying agreements lying around with even more bits of the alphabet, but they're the main ones that have really developed in recent
0: years. So why do you think Australia, first under Morrison, but now under Albanese, is so keen to make AUKUS happen?
1: Well, I think that it's partly, uh, I guess it goes how deep you want the layers to go,
0: Australia, it was really founded uh, on fear of China, going back to the Racial Exclusion
1: Act of 1901 at the beginning of Federation. Our whole social formation going back to the the English invasion in 1788 and is constituting a social invasion which is uh, formed as a a European outpost, as it's often said, in, in the Pacific. And more importantly, at a time when Western imperialist powers had subordinated China to uh, a position of unimportance in not only in East Asian history, but world history, which was entirely atypical of the rest of world history. And so Australia has grown up in this very... Australia as a, a, a post-invasion society has grown up in this sense of China not being important, whereas in fact it really has virtually been the centre of the world for our part, at least for our part of the world. Going on from that, clearly, the increased political and military, not aggression, but aggressiveness from China under President Xi Jinping are quite notable. And this has had both domestic Chinese and external implications. And at the same time, finally, the United States has resolved the issue which had bedevilled its managers from certainly the Clinton administration onwards. So trying to work out whether Clinton, whether, as Clinton hoped, China would be, quote unquote, a strategic partner, in other words, a roughly subordinate partner to America on the globalization conditions or whether it would become a strategic competitor and is now very clearly uh, being labeled the latter not just by the United States uh, not by just by Australia which doesn't really matter very much but most importantly also now by the European Union so there's been a, a seismic shift particularly uh, in relation to energy matters which are really really important in, in this uh this debate so those layers are there but increasingly uh Australia has or Australian politics has been dominated by the famed bipartisan consensus on foreign policy uh, which means that the Liberal and uh, National Coalition together with the Labour Party don't see, basically have a consensus not to see foreign policy as a matter of any great difference and that means the Labour government has really inherited not just uh, the commitment to the American alliance but also this commitment to, as it's properly as it's said sometimes, stand up to China.
0: Yes, and in fact NATO at its uh, Madrid summit just the other day has named China in its in its strategic position paper as being a, a rival for for the first time. I should just mention, by the way, to anybody listening and wondering what the noises are in the background, you're enjoying some winter sunshine in your garden, and it sounds like a, a magpie wants to join the conversation. Just reflecting on AUKUS and Morrison and Albanese, Peter Harcher, who is certainly no friend of of the left, did a two-part, very substantial two-part feature in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And one of the things that came out of that was that the Americans were not keen to go ahead with AUKUS unless Morrison could guarantee that Labour was on board – And Morrison hadn't even briefed the Labor Party at this point and yet said, yes, they will be in lockstep, there isn't a problem. The other thing that came out of Harcher's article very strongly was that the AUKUS initiative is very much an Australian initiative because many in the peace movement and on the left just sort of automatically assume that if Australia does something, it's because America has told the government to do so. But Harcher outlines the way in which AUKUS was actually planned within the Morrison government and then taken quite tentatively to the Americans who were not initially that keen on the idea. Can you talk us through that kind of uh, contradiction?
1: Well, I think Karch is on to something really important there. I think there has been uh, an Australian initiative, not just at Morrison's level, but much more importantly, I think, at the level of uh, the head of our major intelligence service, Andrew Shearer, the former National Security Advisor, who has, putting it mildly, very well plugged into Washington. and. Uh, I think that there has been a a real attempt to to construct a parallel decision-making on the submarine matter in particular to what had been going on in defence. I mean, submarines are very difficult things to build in any circumstances. Um, They're very difficult to build in a country like Australia after we've had Liberal and Labour governments de-industrialising for three decades. And they're usually, for the United States, um, United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, the countries that build submarines that we might buy in Japan, they're in themselves two-decade or even three-decade uh, propositions to get right. So Defence has been paying a lot of attention to actually how to do this, um, and that process was effectively sidelined um, yeah, internal competitor Program uh, headed by partly by people like Shearer, picked up by Morrison, and then thrown, I think, to Biden and uh, uh, Johnson, and that explains a number of things about it. One is that the the content on submarines we'll talk about later i guess uh, but apart from the submarines it's very very vague and it's very hard to think why the americans would particularly have agreed to it and so i suspect they're not particularly committed to it other than the uh, trying to get make sure that the alliance stays stable it has a component i think of american acquiescence at least to what might be uh, australian financial support for the post brexit um, economic mess that Johnson and the Brexiteers have created. It would be very uh, nice if the Australian taxpayers paid uh, Britain for some of its uh, submarines, particularly the ones which are uh, not the current generation of submarines. So I think it's, that makes a lot of sense. I think that the you have to understand that the primary relationship Britain is simply unimportant in all of these matters today. The Biden administration may throw them a few bones to get out of the mess they've created with Brexit and the separation from Europe, but as far as the Biden administration is concerned, the main game is the coordination with the European Union through NATO, and there they've been fabulously successful. They're constructing a new global-level alliance at that level. For Australia, Really, the transmission belts from Washington to um, uh, Canberra
0: are multiple and very strong. And I think, uh, in a
1: sense, Scott Morrison pulled off a nice little diplomatic coup in persuading Biden to go along with AUKUS. But the real game is elsewhere.
0: Let's turn now to the submarines, because you've you've written elsewhere that, uh, and you just really said it there as well, that AUKUS doesn't really amount to very much if you take the submarines out of the picture. Now, people may wonder what the big fuss is apart from the nuclear component, but my understanding is that the current diesel-electric-powered submarines, the Collins-class submarines, if they sail from Perth, can only stay in the South China Sea for 11 days before they have to return to base, and they're only armed with torpedoes. In other words, they can only shoot forwards against other naval targets... Nuclear-powered submarines would be armed with cruise missiles, uh, not necessarily with nuclear weapons, but nonetheless with cruise missiles, and they can lurk off the coast of China for more than two months, threatening Chinese targets. So this is a huge step up in Australian aggression. How do you understand this, this situation? Was a lot to unpack there, but I think
1: the fundamental is we should think about the defence planning which is involved here. And I'm not a pacifist and I'm all in favour of a strong defence of Australia in certain respects. What's really important if you're talking about any weapons platform like submarines is to ask the prior question what's the mission that they are supposed to fulfil and Going further back from that, what's the strategic threat to which that mission is meant to make some contribution? And what's really important about the submarines is exactly what you put your finger on. Their long-range capacity, the nuclear submarines, I should say, nuclear-powered submarines, is their long-range capacity to stay at sea, certainly without refuelling for a very, very long time, but also um, in terms of returning to base for crews and maintenance and things like that. The only uh, mission that makes any sense for the requirement for that kind of range and that kind of endurance is to do with support for American uh, military uh, attacks on, on China. In a couple of different ways Uh, one is to uh, if you like contributing as point guards together with american submarines uh, in protecting uh, american or probably coalition uh, aircraft carrier groups Uh, you'll be aware that back in the 1990s 95 96 in the taiwan straits crisis clinton president clinton deployed u.s carrier task force groups at the top the north and the south end of the taiwan straits a very powerful warning to china to not press any harder in the in the crisis that was uh, underway at that point that would now be impossible for an american admiral to contemplate without very very considerable uh, support and even then in caution because chinese coastal close close-water maritime defences are now much stronger than they were 25 years ago. China doesn't have much power projection capacity, but it has a considerable uh, local defence capacity now. So an Australian nuclear-powered submarine might be a useful contribution to that capacity to protect American task forces at the margins. Of course, it's also a very dangerous mission. The second is that in an American attack or American-led attack on China, an all-out attack, they would be wanting to any additional forces they can get, maritime forces, to be able to attack Chinese aircrafts, Chinese ports, and so forth. And that's where your remark about cruise missiles is is relevant there. But again, the Australian contribution is, A, only likely to be at the very margins, the numbers are so small. Uh, Secondly, even discounting what changes may take place in Chinese uh, defensive capacities in the next 30 years, because it takes 30 years before their submarines arrive, they're very likely to be one-way missions. That then leaves Australia's close-water maritime uh, defences really, really uh, underpowered. And you have to ask the question, uh, well, the first question is, why are we doing this? The second thing is, why aren't we rather deploying our limited tax dollars to the defence of Australia proper? Who knows what could be out there in the future? But it's not unreasonable that we have uh, submarine capabilities and anti-submarine capabilities for our local region, which means our bit of the Indian Ocean, our bit of the Coral Sea um, and the waters to our north. I don't think the South China Sea is something we should be involved in and certainly not the East China Sea. So that basic question, what's the threat and therefore what's the mission and what the mission then says to you about the technical requirements of a given weapons platform and then how do we deal with the Opportunity costs of spending huge amounts of money on one particular platform, which is then not available for something which may be more rational, let alone uh, wider Australian social security-making capabilities. Um, So that's really fundamental. And just to make one quick point, conventional submarines can carry cruise missiles if they want to. It can be done. So that's not the, the key issue there. The second thing is that we still have no idea which submarine we're going to buy, with one ready-made by the Americans, or God help us, the British, or we're going to get in line for some production by one from one or the other with bits and pieces made in Australia. The idea that we're going to the cost of the. French submarines at the Council, which was $100 billion. You mentioned a figure of $170 billion for what's coming from the United States or the United Kingdom or some combo built in Adelaide or wherever. It's unlikely that the, the lifetime costs of any new major submarine are likely to be under half a trillion dollars. Now, I don't know. Well, you probably, the world you live in, but half a trillion dollars is an almost unimaginable amount of money for Australia. And the idea that this would be committed, probably to a marginal contribution for uh, supporting American attacks on China, raises not just the fundamental economic and fiscal lunacy of this, but the question of why would we make such a huge commitment to an attack on China? Even if we, let's, Let's concede a question for the moment of how aggressive China is. China is no threat to Australia in any existential sense, but American nuclear-powered and, for their case, nuclear-armed submarines uh, are an existential threat to China. So we are building up this long-term, fundamental, constitutional East Asian order in which we are committed to assisting the Americans to to make an existential threat to China. I really don't see the long term viability of that. The Americans will go home at some point, China will not.
0: I think we have a little bit of a difference of opinion here over the defence of the Australian continent. And perhaps we'll turn to that a little bit later because I wanted to talk about the broader issue of Australia building up its uh, its military might. So let's park that for the moment uh, and perhaps we'll discuss that later. I still want to stick with the submarines because if Australia buys or builds US-based submarines, this would make this only the second time ever that the Americans have shared the technology, first time with Britain and now with Australia. It would also make Australia the first nation with nuclear-powered submarines that doesn't have a domestic nuclear power industry. What sort of risks does this entail, both having essentially a nuclear pile uh, parked in a in a port somewhere on the east or west coast of Australia, uh, with all the risks that might, that might entail, but also there are risks of encouraging other players in the region to step up to nuclear-powered submarines. So, can you talk us through the nuclear a- angle to this?
1: Yeah, that's. What they're really interesting set of questions. a really important set of questions. Um, Let's take, first of all, the nuclear proliferation aspects of this, nuclear weapons proliferation aspects, because they are important. The country which has been particularly uh, prominent in developing nuclear propulsion for its own submarines outside the major nuclear weapons powers is Brazil. And for about the last 10 years, a number of uh, experts on nuclear proliferation, not all of them uh, simply American Uh, Washington clones, have been pointing out the dangers of this for under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has a kind of grey zone uh, of doubt about whether uh, nuclear-powered vessels, in particular submarines, and assistance for that from uh, nuclear-armed countries would constitute a violation of the NPT. I'll leave that one to the lawyers, but there's certainly an, an, an issue there for Australia and particularly for a Labour government and past Labour governments have been very strong supporters of nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation not of course abolition of nuclear weapons but nuclear disarmament uh, and restricting their, their possession of nuclear weapons to so-called responsible nuclear powers but for a Labour government to give the nod to this new project so easily is very dismaying and I think we're going to see more about that. Coming closer to home uh let's assume that as uh, defenders of the submarine proposal have have reiterated, US or nuclear or um, uh, UK supplied nuclear submarines would have basically um, an entirely closed nuclear power system which uh, essentially, we wouldn't be refuelling from Australia, we wouldn't be touching the innards, if you like, of the reactor system. That still leaves, uh, even conceding all of that, uh, for the sake of argument, that still leaves very serious issues of nuclear safety at sea in particular, but also in Australian ports. And I just invite listeners to uh, go back and look at the behaviour of the Defence Department over so-called PFAS, chemicals, P-F-A-S, the chemicals that were used all around uh, Australian bases and uh, air bases in particular for firefighting, drills mainly, which have polluted land from Catherine right down to New South Wales. You might think I'm being unreasonable about this, but uh, think of the combination of that dilatory behaviour by our Defence Department. Think of nuclear accidents, which are worldwide, including nuclear submarines, most recently, appallingly, a Russian submarine off the the northern coast of uh, Murmansk a couple of years ago. Submarines are incredibly difficult uh, pieces of technology to make work. They're harder still when they're underwater, They're harder still when they are in combat, and they're harder again when they've got any kind of nuclear material on board. We would have to develop a really extraordinarily robust port and maritime nuclear safety capability, and we would have none whatsoever at the moment. The Americans have just announced that they're going to send two Royal Australian Navy officers each year to a seven-week nuclear reactor training course and then they'll have two years working with um, on board uh, an American nuclear submarine. Well, I think there are plumbing apprenticeships which are longer than that <laughs> um, and I think that this is an extraordinarily risky activity in pure civilian safety terms. There are often suggestions that um, uh, a nuclear-powered submarine could be the source of uh, fission material, highly enriched uranium, for an Australian uh, indigenous nuclear weapon. It's certainly true that the American nuclear submarines do use highly enriched uranium, which is very suitable for um, uh, a nuclear weapons pile, uh, as opposed to the French ones, which we did not buy, uh, which use low enriched uranium um, and much less useful for being diverted to nuclear weapons manufacture. But I'm fairly convinced by experts that I've listened to that uh, in the American case, at least, the reactors can be in t- built into the submarine so that effectively to take out the material is a really major engineering activity which is unlikely to be done covertly. And to be perfectly frank, Australia has other ways of getting highly enriched uranium uh, if they want to and if the Americans agree, which is the part of both scenarios. And so we don't have any nuclear safety capability of any size in this country. We don't have a nuclear engineering, in particular, naval nuclear engineering capability. The risk is, uh, the political risk, is that this would be an excuse to build up those departments in universities, nuclear engineering, would certainly bolster the argument for the, the high-level nuclear waste dumps that the government, and I noticed that the naval government has not withdrawn from this, um, wants to build in South Australia... I think that nuclear, civilian nuclear power, and it's sometimes suggested that there's a, a, a route from naval nuclear power to civilian nuclear power, is just a dodo. Um, so there is very little chance that any commercial um, nuclear power facility will ever be built in Australia. The economics are just utterly against it.
0: Okay, so there's the risk of a malfunction. There's a risk, obviously, if a submarine is attacked, of a breach in that nuclear capacity, but not an immediate risk of materials being extracted. There is also the political risk of of proliferation. I noticed that when Penny Wong was talking to the Malaysian government just a couple of days ago, they were opposed to the nuclear submarine deal precisely because they felt it would give the green light to South Korea and Japan to lobby or buy the same kind of technology. And they can see the arms race just ramping up and ramping up. I assume that's a reasonable concern.
1: Yes, you're quite right about that. And certainly uh, South Korea has requested on a number of occasions in the United States that it be allowed to build uh, nuclear-powered submarines. I think the allowed part of it would come because there would be American-built or American-licensed bits of nuclear um, reactor technology involved. And they're covered under what are called one, two, three agreements uh, from the United States and countries with which it has various forms of nuclear trade, nuclear Uh, power and nuclear um, technology trade, the South Koreans um, point all the time to the fact that Japan, with whom, of course, South Korea has a very bad relationship, is the only... Sorry, that South Korea has um, the full panoply of nuclear manufacturing capabilities. It exports nuclear reactors to the UAE, for example, um, and wants to do so to other countries. But unlike Japan, it does not have uh, a nuclear uh, spent fuel reprocessing capabilities, and Japan has a huge one uh, there, uh, one of the biggest industrial capabilities in Japan itself, and does not have a uranium, South Korea does not have a uranium enrichment capability and the south koreans always say to the americans why do you allow japan to have such capabilities when you deny that to us isn't that a denial of our nuclear sovereignty and they're really serious about this and sooner or later there's going to be greater pressure uh, on the united states to give way on that issue and so the malaysians are quite right um to point firstly to south korea and i think secondly to japan that they if australia is granted this capability we still really don't know it's actually going to happen in various ways then they're quite right that really makes a big escalation in nuclear propulsion in the capabilities of maritime power projection uh, in East and Southeast Asia and that's not to the advantage of the Malaysians or the Indonesians for that matter and certainly not to Australia I would argue
0: let's pull back now and look a little bit more at the sort of geopolitical balance that we mentioned earlier and the media is constantly playing on China's military expansion. The fuss about the deals with the Solomons is just the latest example. Yet China is dwarfed as a global power by the US, certainly in military terms. Can you give us an idea of the imbalance? Yes, it's, a, it's an enormous imbalance. And I think people often point to
1: comparative spending. Um, and so the Americans spend as much as together to the top other eight military uh, spenders in the world. But that, of course, is misleading in itself because you're dealing with the accumulated, if you like, military inequalities that have built up since that, you know, unipolar moment at the end of of the Second World War since then. One way in which that's sort of manifest, of course, is in overseas military bases. China has one military base, for sure, in Djibouti. It's a small base. It's opposite a huge American French one in Djibouti. They have whatever they have with the Solomon Islands, and we don't know precisely what that is at the present. Uh, They also have access to ports in Pakistan and uh, possibly in Sri Lanka. It's not very clear about that. So that, if you take the worst possible view of that, that adds up to five overseas military bases of some kind. And that needs to be compared with the American military bases uh, overseas, which, according to American Defense Department documents, are over 900 outside the United States. And I've pursued parts of this with specialists in this area, and they're really not even sure whether that number is correct. It could well be much larger. Partly it depends what you mean by a base, but the Americans are pretty clear about what they mean by them. So uh, in terms of power projection capabilities, China simply does not have any. It's been trying to remedy that in part. It's certainly adopted a military doctrine quite recently of authorising the People's Liberation Army Navy and the People's Liberation Army, or the Army part of it, uh, but particularly the Navy and the Air Force, to support protection of Chinese citizens and Chinese interests overseas. And that, in the case of Britain and France, and of course in the case of the United States, has always been uh, a cover for um, so-called humanitarian uh, interventions and other forms of military intervention. So that is happening. But the great shift in China has been its development of maritime and air defences. Its army is not particularly uh, important at the moment, and recall that the last time it was used in warfare was against uh, Vietnam in the punitive expeditions in 1979 for the Vietnamese sin of uh, siding with the Russians in the Sino-Soviet dispute, and they lost very badly there. It's very different today. The other, however, really important matter to point out is the inequality, although it's not quite the right word, the imbalance uh, in nuclear capabilities between the United States and China. The numbers are vastly weighted in terms of the United States, some um, 1,800 ready-to-fire weapons, and another three to 4,000 in the lockers ready to be um, armed if need be, uh, as against China's probably 300, perhaps maximum 400 nuclear warheads of all kinds. It's certainly true that the Chinese are expanding various aspects of their nuclear capability, but they are still in the same region as Britain and uh, France as minor nuclear plans. More importantly, China has no substantial defense, effective defense, against overwhelming American superiority in ballistic missile defense, Which means, even if China fires its nuclear weapons under whatever circumstances, very few of them are going to get through. And more importantly, China has nothing like the intelligence and surveillance uh, capabilities that facilities such as Pine Gap or Northwest Cape uh, and many others around the world provide to the United States. So it's a It's a matter of great imbalance, and while you do find Chinese generals from time to time saying very scary things about Taiwan, I think it's very unlikely that China is going to risk everything, pretty much, or using its conventional, let alone its nuclear capabilities, against Taiwan in any serious attack, Uh, because the imbalance is so
0: great, even though it has changed in China's favor uh, in recent years. And the imbalance, I think, is really heightened recently. You know, as I say, the the media fuss, the political fuss about the Chinese maybe having access to uh, docking facilities in the Solomons. And meanwhile, the US has announced a massive step up of involvement and troops, Navy and Air Force, on the ground in Europe as part of uh, NATO's more aggressive stance. I mean, I think under Biden, the number of American troops has gone up by 20,000 and now they're talking about increasing that by a couple of hundred thousand having a permanent headquarters in Poland positioning uh, ships in Spain and el- elsewhere and the media just waves that through waves that through as if that's that's just the weather you know it's just one of those things that happens in life Oh, I
1: think it's time for all of us to go back and uh, read once again um, Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman's work on the free press uh, in their book Manufactured Consent and other places. And, of course, other people have said the same thing. But, you know, Noam and and Ed Herman, there. Talk, they were talking about, say, the difference between the media coverage in those days of the terror of used by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, which was horrific, um, and the terror used by uh, Indonesian generals to take power against President Sukarno um, a few years earlier. And of course, uh, that was not regarded as so terrible by the media at that stage. And Chomsky and Herman distinguished between, in those cases, what they call. Uh, in the eyes of the Western media, benign terror and malign terror. Benign terror is either ignored or excused, and malign terror is highlighted and amplified uh, there. And we're seeing precisely the same process. And I think just studying the media, what Chomsky called, you know, nastily the free press, is really important to understand what's happening, because I think the transmission belts between government and media are even tighter than they were uh, back in the 1980s there. This is a, a real problem for Australia and not just for Australia at the moment.
0: Let's come back to Australia in terms of, of power projection. Australia is obviously a much smaller power than the United States, much, much smaller. But nonetheless, it aims to dominate the South Pacific, including Papua New Guinea and the rest of Melanesia. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Solomons issue blew up, because you know uh, another power had the temerity to potentially place some of its forces 2,000 kilometres from the Queensland coast in what the Australian Marine class obviously see as their backyard. And so alongside the submarines project there is, and this is obviously much more deliverable on a shorter timeline, the last government and the current government are committed to spending much more on the military. So we're talking about 38 billion dollars to expand the Australian Defence Force personnel numbers and we're talking about personnel in uniform, not, not administrators, from 60,000 to 80,000, another three and a half billion dollars on an advanced weapons upgrade for the ADF, and who knows how much to establish a domestic missile manufacturing industry. And I think that's why, uh, I think this is where we have a little difference of opinion. This is why the Solidarity would argue that Australia is a sub-imperialist power, it's not a global imperialist by any means, but a sub-imperialist power. And the build-up of the military is not about defending ordinary people in Australia. It's about projecting Australian power across the region. And, and obviously what flows from that is trade and profits. What do you see as the rationale behind this really substantial step up in, in military spending? I
1: would say it's pretty much pretty much as you do and uh, I think the fundamental question is what is the spending for is the is the right one I think our attitude to the Pacific has actually not changed for a long time and I think if you think back to John Howard's declaration that Australia has a right to protect itself against any of the presence of any forces uh, I think he talked about a thousand kilometers uh, from the Australian coastline and you can re- you might remember that caused some consternation in Indonesia and Malaysia, and I'm sure it didn't impress Pacific Island states either. That was a kind of regional stewardship, um, uh, kind of delegated uh, the deputy sheriff, as uh, uh, how it was labelled correctly or incorrectly, I think correctly. And I think we have that long-term habit, and it is much resented in the Pacific, which is why we're seeing the, the first moves uh, towards China in the Solomons and elsewhere as well. I go back to the fundamental issue. I think that defence policy is a concern for everyone. Um, solidarity and any other political movement has to talk about it. And I think the question of the security of the Australian people in a broader sense, multiple manifold senses, is really, really important. I think that in the past we have had some uh, thinking by defence planners in Canberra, which has been much more sensible than what's happening at the moment. And I'd go back to the, uh, the thinking of the 1986 review of Australian defence by Paul Dibb, which was backed up by a whole lot of work by Desmond Ball and Joel Langtree, uh, which led to the reorientation of Australian defence forces, particularly Um, the Army and the Air Force from being based in Melbourne and Sydney towards being based somewhere in the north and west of the country. Unless you're expecting an attack from the Penguins or New Zealand, there's nothing here to justify having defence forces here. That lens leads you to the question of whether you want to have any kind of power prediction capability. And I certainly do not think that Australia should have any role in, in terms of uh, a deputised power projection capacity on part of the Americans in, in the South Pacific. I think that there are other ways of uh, addressing their concerns. Penny Wong actually got it right, obviously, about climate change, which is a huge concern. My guess is that the majority opinion in the Pacific Island Forum is very concerned about the moves by China, not necessarily by them as such, but precisely because of the turbulence that comes in the wake of that. How dare, say, the Americans, the natural order be uh, disturbed? Well, it might need to be disturbed, but the way you do it matters a great deal. Coming closer to home, yeah, I think almost All of our military spending over the past two decades has been misdirected and continues to be misdirected. We are buying weapons platforms which we have no real use, which are only suitable for use either in American wars of choice, notably Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, which were basically uh, simply defeats. No, there's no question about them. At the very best, Afghanistan might have been regarded as a third-order strategic interest for Australia, but was really uh, intensely counterproductive to us and 70, 80 people died from the ADF, 250-plus very seriously wounded, Say nothing of the many, many more Afghans have studied. And, of course, it's a complete disaster, and as a result of that defeat, Australia is collaborating with the United States in punishing the victors, namely the Taliban, making life even worse for the people of Afghanistan, who we said we were protecting. Going close to home, I, my own feeling is that it's we need to revisit some older debates about the idea of post-alliance neutrality for Australia, whether it's neutrality in a legal sense or whether it's non-alignment. Non-alignment was relatively easy to think about during the Cold War, It's actually not easy to think about now, but certainly, apropos China, I think is precisely the right answer uh, we should be thinking about. That doesn't mean that some of the thinking in the 80s about, say, um, imagine that the current Minister of Defence in Indonesia, Prabowo Subianto, who was uh, declared so by the United States and not allowed into the United States for a long time, uh, imagine he's a two-time presidential candidate. He's certain to run next year in the indonesian presidential election once
0: again and the chances are he could win he's in favor of indonesian nuclear power but he's also very seriously interested
1: in indonesian nuclear weapons what happens if for whatever set of reasons we are in a difficult relationship with indonesia there's no the fantasies of australians about invasion are absurd but it isn't completely absurd to imagine a set of scenarios under which a political disagreement between Australia and a certain kind of Indonesia could lead to nibbling attacks, say, on the gas platforms in the northwest shelf, Cocos Islands, Christmas Islands, which actually I think shouldn't be part of Australia. They were a little run around at the end of British imperialism at that in that part of the world. Uh, they should be part of uh, Singapore, actually. But there is a credible possibility you can think of which is not totally absurd which would lead you to require some kind of protective capability now there's no way of answering you know the like well i think the likelihood of issues is something to be considered very seriously so i'm not anticipating any of that in short any short order but i think you'd be irresponsible if you said look such things cannot happen and i think you need to think about a little bit that said I'd be talking about it in terms of armed neutrality, which by its nature doesn't call for power projection of any significance. I'd also be talking about it in terms of revisiting the issue of Australian civilian security. What the Swedes in the 1970s called total defence was essentially built on the idea they couldn't stop a Russian invasion. They could slow it down militarily, but what they could really do was make it very clear that Swedish infrastructure would be pre-organised, to be sabotaged, and it wouldn't work. So what then would be the advantage of taking, it up, taking Sweden over? Now, these are very broad-brush matters, but I think thinking about this kind of total defence with the emphasis leaning away from the purely military is really important and sensible. And I, I think we need to talk
0: about it together with non-alignment or neutrality. Look, you're raising some really interesting questions. I just have to, for the record, since I'm hosting this podcast, say that I, I disagree with you. That I think, for instance, the rise of uh, an aggressive and militaristic uh, leadership in Jakarta is best met by the rise of a militant mass movement inside Indonesia, demanding that money is spent on alleviating poverty, not on nuclear weapons and, and nuclear power stations. And I think we could make common cause with such a movement much more easily if we, those of us in Australia who believe in, in peace and believe in uh, collaboration between ordinary people are arguing against the militarisation of Australia. So that's a big, broad, strategic question, and perhaps we should actually address that as a standalone debate on another occasion.
1: Look, I'm really pleased to hear that. I mean firstly, because uh, I think it's extraordinarily important for uh, Australian social movements of all times to pay much, much more attention, proactively and po- and constructively, to building relationships with social movements, you know parallel social movements, if you like, in all major South Southeast Asian and Pacific countries, and in uh, Korea and dare I say it, in China. Uh, the latter is obviously extremely hard. But this is really important, simply because, precisely as you say, there are shared interests which can be cultivated, identified, cultivated, expanded, and can become the basis of policy. And I wholly agree uh, with what you're talking about there. And I think we have failed in recent years um, I had a long time away out of this country in Japan for 13 years and came back to find myself quite surprised by the limitations of both peace movement and other political movements interaction with the neighbours so to speak. I suspect some of your activity is an exception to that which is fantastic but I just just in my own small defence I just say one thing the kind of military that I would be talking about uh, is um, much more low level, much more defensively oriented rather than offensively so that would be the, I'm just leaving that on the on the table for now but I'm, I just would be, I'm very grateful to you actually saying you disagree because one of the, the problems certainly about the peace movement in Australia is we don't articulate the disagreements enough in a way to
0: start working through some of them and I think the debate is actually critical here thank you for that and look this has been a really rich and fascinating discussion i've learned a lot uh, you are absolutely an expert in in this field and we can all uh, gain a lot from your your insights but perhaps we'll move on then to social movements you're a supporter of the Anti Orcus coalition in melbourne what do you think we need to be doing to build the size and influence of the Anti antiochus campaign
1: I think, first of all, I think people like me, but other people, please, need to get on top of what's actually going on. We can't rely on the Peter Hutches of the world uh, to do our research for us. And we need to be collaborating, in this case, with people in the United States and in, in Britain, number one. Number two... On the issues which are vague and not much talked about in AUKUS, some of which are covered by bilateral agreements and others like quantum computing are just very far in the future. We need to develop a bigger civil society, social movement, capacity to educate ourselves, to find out what is actually going on. The number of people working in this area is incredibly small and most of them uh, uh, work in and for Canberra one way or another. That said, and um, I look at this from both an anti-nuclear and broader peace movement issue. The fundamental issue here is the American alliance. Let's forget about the UK part of it, except possibly uh, in relation to submarines if a disastrous decision is made to buy British submarines. But fundamentally, AUKUS is an outgrowth of developments in the Alliance and wider outreach is really important. My own feeling very strongly is that movements about the Alliance, about AUKUS in particular, uh, are a matter of horses for courses and groups which, which come out of a socialist tradition are one part of it, uh, but they're also a way, need to be... Th- thought it needs to be a very clear alliance with people who come, a deep commitment to global sustainability and rectifying Australia's catastrophic position in this peace movement, people, pacifists, and also working harder, I think, to try and break into mainstream media. Wonderful though it is, David, to be on the air with you. Um, I don't think our numbers are going to be matched by those of Channel 9's breakfast show tomorrow, which is undoubtedly going to say something about Anthony Albanese um, and AUKUS. And so I think that it's part about building up a civil society capability on all of the matters we've been talking about. None of what I've been saying is is rocket science, a very bad pun. It's really stuff which is pretty straightforward, uh, Noam Chomsky used to say that, you know, he devoted in his, his 90 now, but when he's working days, he devoted one day a week to this sort of work. Noam's a pretty amazing, capable person. But intellectually, it's not complicated. And one of the great things is that a lot more of the information is out there and can be retrieved. And then we can have the discussion about which direction is the right one. So movement, self-education, the commitment to basing our work on truth, in fact, relying on the actual facts on the ground rather than the ones we would prefer to believe, and then having robust but civil arguments about what are the right answers, and then opening the doors and assuming that and accepting that there are going to be many different directions from which people are going to be concerned about issues like the alliance. And I'll just finish by noticing that Yesterday, The Guardian reported that Lowy Institute's latest public opinion poll uh, reported that some three-quarters of Australians are concerned that Australia's alignment with the United States, particularly in the current context, increases the risk of war, which is absolutely right. So working out ways of reaching out to a much wider group of people, frankly, what I've only seen in the early 1980s, in the anti-nuclear movement and the uh, anti-uranium movement and again briefly in the first responses to the invasion of iraq building on that and that's just a long hard struggle and i think it's a matter of of horses for courses quite seriously of different ways of approaching people and just keeping up the work which i know that your group has done for a long time
0: well thank you for that richard i can confirm by the way that the audience for this podcast is somewhere between a zero and a million. Um, It's up to you to decide where on the scale that that falls. Um, And I think everybody in the movement can agree that we do not want to increase the chance of war. And AUKUS is very much increasing that possibility of conflict uh, with China. And I think everybody can agree that whether it's 170 billion or half a trillion, there are so many urgent needs A complete transition in terms of the renewable economy, uh, with guaranteed jobs for fossil workers, aged care, education, um, the situation of poverty, uh, job seeker. There are just an enormous shopping list of things that need to be fixed in this country, and 170 billion dollars would go a long, long way towards fixing some of those issues. And that, I think, on those points of agreement, we can go forward and build the campaign. So. I'd like to thank you for your time today.
1: Great to be with you, thanks for asking, bye bye.